Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to this next episode of School Struggles. I'm proud to be a part of the Coffee Clutch team. On School Struggles, we talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special education, ADHD, and a whole host of other interesting topics that affect your child. By way of introduction, I am a child psychologist and the director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is a part of the Department of Pediatrics, Cooper University Healthcare. We're located in Voorhees, New Jersey. I am also the author of two books, both published by Sentient Publications. The first one is The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child, and the more recently published book called School Struggles. You can learn more about these at my website, www.shutdownlearner.com. That's all one word, shutdownlearner.com. That site is loaded with blogs and lots of tidbits for parents, and the books are also available on Amazon and Barnes & Nobles. You can follow me on Facebook under Shutdown Learner and Twitter. You'll find me there, too. Um, it's the, you know, the goal of this show, School Struggles, that we will be talking in kind of a down-to-earth, plain language for parents to help them understand their child better, kind of like a living room chat. Um, and you can hear previous episodes of School Struggles on www.thecoffeeclutch.com. Our show is sponsored by Mayer Johnson, that's M-A-Y-E-R Johnson, which is your special education super source. Mayor Johnson, the makers of Board Maker, have recently released an e-catalog featuring hundreds of great products, including several significantly reduced in price. So visit Mayor-Johnson, that's M-A-Y-E-R-Johnson.com to learn more. And we are also sponsored by udiscovering.org. That's www.u, discovering. That's one word, udiscovering.org. So how can you help your child who's just been diagnosed with autism? The online training course, Discovering Behavioral Intervention, is the answer. And real parents take you through applied behavioral analysis in 10 step-by-step modules, and you'll find more at udiscovering.org. So tonight I am excited to have um, my guest, Dr. Michael Galloway. And uh, Dr. Galloway has been in private practice in South Jersey. He's a developmental optometrist who's been in private practice for 25 years. You're that old, Michael, huh? I am uh, very old. 
<laughs> His practice is devoted to children's vision and vision therapy. He's also an associate professor at the Pennsylvania College of Optometry at Salis University in Philadelphia, where he teaches and does research on vision therapy, convergence insufficiency, and school vision screenings. And I want to say just briefly, I met Dr. Galloway, Michael, um, a lot of years ago now, Michael, I'm that old too, and uh, we uh, it was one of my first big gigs to, to be working at the College of Optometry, and it was a very exciting time for me at the Eye Institute. And what was great about working there was that it was a truly multidisciplinary setting. What we had back then in the mid-'80s into the mid-'90s, at least when I was there, um, you know, we worked with a pediatric neurologist, and we had psychologists, myself and and another psychologist and audiologist um, uh, we had specialists aud- right audiologists yeah. and reading specialists we we did wilson reading we did orton gillian and there was a real collegial atmosphere uh which was which was exciting you know there was no sense of conflict among the different disciplines so that's how i met dr gowan he's a great guy and uh He's a very warm. We, we're, we've grown to be very good friends over the years, and I was, you know, really. He and I have had this ongoing conversation about, you know, learning disabilities, dyslexia, reading problems, and we both respect each other's point of view. And we we've hacked it around over a glass of wine at dinner and brown bag lunches, and we're just continuing the conversation tonight, Michael. So, I welcome you to School Struggles, and uh, I think it'll be a good conversation. Richard, thank you. I uh, appreciate the invitation, and uh, it, it has been a, a long conversation. And uh, those early years uh, really opened my mind to a lot of different uh, approaches, uh, and, and it was uh, a great way to uh, to learn about the, the breadth and the scope of, of issues that can uh, affect kids' learning and, and development. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I'm just reflecting as you're talking. I can picture us sitting outside, you know, with our brought lunch, and we would be kicking it around, just you and I, we, you know, we talk about decoding, and I would be passionate about, you know, it has to be done a certain way, and you'd say, yeah, okay, that's true, but what about these other variables, and I'd listen to you, and we would kind of, and we, we've been kicking it around, so here we are. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Michael, uh, tell, you know, by way of introduction, because I, I find there's a tremendous amount of confusion out there, you know, it's a goal of this show, as I've told you before, to to make this down to earth for parents so they can help so can, you know this is so much out there for them to sort out so tell us about first about your professional life a little bit what do you do and then you know tell, help us also by way of beyond that explain the difference somewhat between you know developmental optometry and ophthalmology so people can kind of get it okay sounds good um so basically, uh, you know, my my professional life is is examining and treating kids with a wide range of vision problems that uh, sometimes have a big impact on on their learning, reading, and attention, and other times have little or no impact, but they're they're having headaches or or double vision uh, things like that. Um, parents often are when they're confronted with kids that have reading and learning issues, one of the the obvious questions that people often ask is, is my child seeing things properly? Is it is it their eyes? They they notice kids that are reversing their letters, or they skip words when they're reading. Uh, maybe they rub their eyes, or they they have uh, complaints about seeing the board. And uh, schools will will often say uh, to a, a child's family, you should have your child's eyes examined. So. Uh, I'm a pediatric optometrist, as you said, and, and uh, 
my time is spent uh, really trying to peel the onion uh, with, with these kids that come to see me, figure out where their issues are um, in terms of their, their vision, and, and try to, to figure out uh, whether vision is playing a role in their, their reading or learning problems. We have uh, kind of a, a funny um, um, setup for, uh, for eye care in this country. We have two quite different professions that uh, offer eye care um, to all Americans, uh, ophthalmology and optometry. And um, people are often confused about that. They often will throw in uh, obstetricians as well and opticians and you know, all those O words, and uh, you know, many people aren't quite sure uh, what anybody is doing. So I'll try to provide a little, uh, little clarity on that. Uh, ophthalmologists are medical doctors who go to medical school and then spend a typically a three-year residency in ophthalmology after medical school uh, with extensive training in uh, eye surgery and uh, significant eye disease. Uh, and they're, they're highly trained as, as, as surgeons. Um, optometrists uh, go to optometry school after, after college. It's, it's similar to uh, dental school in that it's a four-year post-college curriculum. And our emphasis, we're not optometrists, are not surgeons, we're not taught to do surgery. Uh, we are taught to everything about visual function. Uh, um, we treat uh, uh, minor eye diseases and glaucoma, we use medications, but we provide, we prescribe glasses, uh, contact lenses, uh, and we do vision therapy. Uh, uh, vision therapy is a, is a specialty area within optometry that uh, not all optometrists offer. It's a small group, smaller group of us that do, but all optometrists are exposed to vision therapy as part of their training. Ophthalmologists typically uh, are not exposed to vision therapy uh, virtually at all in their training, and therein lies the uh, kind of the difference in, uh, in, in philosophy. Uh, people are certainly familiar with the differences between psychiatrists and psychologists, uh, you know, different, different training and different orientation towards treatment. Similar to the differences between uh, podiatrists and chiropractors and orthopedic surgeons, uh, uh, different approaches to treatment. So optometry and ophthalmology is, uh, is, is similar. Both of them do eye exams, uh, but they're often quite different eye exams with, with a different focus and, and uh, different treatment strategies. So if um let's why don't you walk us through a parent comes in to your office and let's say they haven't seen somebody like myself or they haven't necessarily been seen by what is like in New Jersey called the child study team or a special ed team in whatever state you might they might be in what what walk us through a little bit you know the what happens to a school, you know, typical eight-year-old child, nine-year-old child comes into your office and the parent is presenting with school-based problems. Uh, what are the tests? What do you do? What, you know, that, that kind of thing. The, um, the typical uh, scenario is that, that kids are coming to me with some type of behavior, uh, either noticed by a teacher, sometimes the parents notice it, uh, sometimes it might be... Uh, an occupational therapist working with the child. Sometimes it's the school nurse who's done a screening with the child. But there's some sort of behavior that's that's a red flag for a possible vision problem. Are there? Can you even give me the top five of those red flags that you sure, typically sure. would get? Sure, sure. I mean, you can you can kind of divide it up into what what I call physical symptoms uh, of um, headaches is a common one, eye strain, uh, 
blurry vision, double vision type symptoms that, that, that kids will sometimes verbalize, although younger kids typically don't verbalize those things. Uh, kids mm-hmm. under the age of 10 often don't. As kids get older, they'll verbalize them. But the signs that kids will show, even very young, are things like uh, rubbing their eyes when they're reading or doing close work, tilting or turning their head, covering or closing one eye, losing their place when they read, uh, their reading getting slower or choppier the longer they read, uh, displaying uh, avoidance of reading or uh, uh, having difficulty sustaining attention uh, during uh, reading, taking a long time to do homework assignments. So these, so, these yeah. those are the types of behaviors that teachers and parents come to me with all the time. So those can, I just want to clarify, so, you know, I, <laughs> even though you and I have had this conversation for the last 25 years, I still need clarification too. So, so um, even in what I'm hearing you say that even with good, possibly with a person who reads well, uh, you know, an adequate reader, for example, may be showing these symptoms, the headaches and the blurry vision and just feeling a sense of fatigue. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. I mean, part of what I do is I, if, when kids come to me, I, I do a screening of their, their reading. I, I, have, I do a word rec test and I'll do a phonemic awareness test. Or I'll ask the parents to bring reports if they've had that type of testing already done through the school. So I need some handle on what their reading skills are like. Uh, I'm giving full credit for that word rec test, Michael. I think I schooled you on that a lot. Exactly, you bet. I think I'm, I'm taking credit on that one. Dude. I learned you that know, one. You're not, get, you're not getting away ago. from that, man. You're not getting away with that, man. <laughs> and uh, so I'm taking a, a detailed history and um, figuring out where the kids' learning challenges are based on uh, an evaluation, any evaluations done by the school, uh, questionnaires filled out by the parents and, and, and often the mm-hmm. teachers, and then. Vision testing. There's uh, a whole battery of standard vision tests that that uh, all optometrists uh, do that are, are working with kids in, in this area. And the idea is that it's not enough for kids to just see clearly and have healthy eyes. That there's a whole group of visual skills, uh, eye teaming, binocular vision, uh, focusing skills, uh, visual tracking, visual processing, tests that aren't really assessed with your typical basic eye exam and uh, those skills really have to be looked at in detail to figure out if the kids if kids have a, a visual problem and then the last piece and, and often the, the 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 trickiest piece is to figure out if they do have a vision problem how much of a role is it playing in that particular kid's academic difficulties and you can have kids who have <clears throat> intact reading skills and intact attentional skills, no learning disability, no reading disability, but they get headaches or eye strain when they read, and then as a result they avoid reading or, or, or their uh, fluency uh, suffers. Or you can have kids who have multiple diagnoses who, who also can have vision problems. And the tricky part is, is figuring out how much of a role vision, play, vision problems are playing with, with each individual child. Do you find that there's a, that that percentage, in a sense, that is that is that case that you just described a fairly significant percentage where a, a fair number of kids don't have the learning problems, but they're showing these symptoms that you're describing? Is that is that a pretty big N, so to speak, of, of that, kids that, coming that's through? That's a good question. I, I think I probably see fewer of those kids just because when kids have 
um, when they don't have a learning disability, when they don't have ADD, when they don't have a reading disability, they have a lot more tools to compensate. And oftentimes I might see those kids when they're a little bit older. Maybe they're in junior high or they're early in high school and it shows up as reduced reading speed or, or, or avoidance of reading. Whereas the younger kids who present earlier, uh, you know, they often do have uh, other things going on. So it's, mm-hmm. I, I'd say that probably two-thirds of the kids I see, or maybe even more, are, are kids where there are indications either already diagnosed by other professionals or already diagnosed by the school district, uh, but they've already got stuff going on uh, besides their vision. And, and uh, people are wondering, is, is, it, is it all this due to a vision problem, or is vision a contributing factor? And that's really the question that I'm trying you know, to answer. Yeah, you know, it, it strikes me as you're talking, and I was, of course, doing a little bit of homework to, to prepare for this, and, you know, there's a lot of controversial and, you know, articles out there. And one of the things that I, you know, we, you and I know full well that dyslexia is a language-based learning disability, that phonemic awareness factors, language factors are the, you know, I don't think there's a there's a mountain of research. I don't think there's much controversy about that. But I think that, and I and I think that where the field gets, it strikes me that there's this notion somehow that vision has create, you know, that vision has not created the dyslexic problems. And I think that you would, I believe you would agree with that. I think you just see this, these fatiguing issues and these visual symptoms as, in a sense, they're not helping the kid any. And they could be pulling him, as you described it, I remember before, as kind of layers of an onion, so to speak, that are contributing, but not purely causal. I think that's the, the part where sometimes we get into difficulty. Would you, would you comment on that? Oh, Would yeah, uh, that, that's, uh, that's really hitting it right on the head, is, is that um, vision problems do not cause language-based dyslexia or reading disability. And hold, you're hold on. Totally Say that right. again, Michael. Say that again. <laughs> vision <laughs> problems do not cause dyslexia. And it's um, part of the criticism of, of vision therapy is that uh, critics are, are saying that vision therapy is supposed to fix dyslexia. Well, it doesn't. Our official documents or, or position papers that come out of optometry, right off, right off out of the gate, we say vision therapy d- d- does not cure dyslexia. You know, um, can I just stop you for one quick second? Sure. I, know, I, don't, I, I have notes here. Don't interrupt, but I'm going to interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that's so important for you to, to stress and to say, you know, that be, for parents to understand that, you know, it's, and I would like you to elaborate on that a little bit, just that, vi- you know, the vision treatments are not fixing per se the reading problem, right? But well, they let, are let, fixing let, some things, you know. Then right. that's what's important that, for you to really elaborate. Right. On. And let, let me give you an example, which I think will will kind of bring this home. I mean, let, let's take an example of a child who's in third grade, nine-year-old boy, and this this child has been having difficulties, let's say, with reading right out of the gate. In the kindergarten, right. they're struggling with uh, phonics and word recognition and. They were identified as as needing basic skills, extra help in reading. But then over the past year or so, they're also complaining that they have headaches and the words move around on the page when they read. And that kid comes to see me, and I diagnose this child as having an eye muscle problem that's causing uh, headaches and and, uh, and double Mm -hmm. vision and is making reading harder. But it's also clear from the history and from 
some reading testing that the school provided that this kid has a language-based reading disability. And so what I often say to parents in these situations is I say, if, if I had a magic wand and could touch your child right now and get rid of their vision problems, they would still have a reading disability. But what they would be able to do is read much more comfortably and for longer periods of time without getting headaches, without uh, getting double vision, and it affects their willingness to read and their basically their ability to benefit from the extra help that they're getting to help them catch up. So in that case, the vision problems were definitely secondary to that kid's reading problem. That, 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 that child, that example, is one of, a, of you know, kids that I treat. And, and uh, is vision therapy going to fix their dyslexia? Absolutely not. Is vision therapy well, going to make yeah. their eye muscle problem better and make them more available to benefit from the, the tutoring that they're getting uh, and, and have reading feel less stressful, uh, uh, generally yeah. uh, that, that I can do that. Well, you know, it's funny, you know that I, I don't refer, like, every case out for this kind of thing. I'm very judicious about it, and I really try to pick my spots, and I look for certain signs, and I, I go beyond reading. You know, I, I don't just look at reading. So when it, when, uh, when they're doing some kind of near-point tracking you know, like from the WISC, you know, the Wexler Intelligence Scale, there's a processing speed, a visual processing speed, and I can see the chugging along, so to speak, and the labored approaches and some other factors like that. And, and, and I see some kids who clearly don't have – It's really they're really interesting to me because they don't have what I would say is pure decoding problems, you know, phonics problems, but they're kind of like – I describe them as just – you know, they're just dr- strain. The engine is straining. There's something mm-hmm. about the way they're going at it that is just, you know, that kind of thing. That and it's not, and it's not a f- pure reading fluency problem. If you see what right. I'm saying, I and I think those are the kids that I tend to think of as, oh, that's a that's kind of a realm of Galloway, or that's kind of a way I would like your opinion on that that kind of thing. Would you would, what's your comment on that? Well, I, I think that what people need to realize is that. <clears throat> There's a different set of visual skills. We use our eyes much differently with reading and close work than we do when we're watching TV or seeing road signs or seeing the blackboard in school. Seeing things far away requires clear visual acuity. That's the 2020-2040 stuff. Um, if kids can't uh, see those small letters on the board, they they usually will get glasses to help them. But skills like how well does the child use both eyes together, how well do they focus? How well do they track? These are eye-brain skills, neuromuscular skills that kids often struggle with even though they have 20-20 vision. And these kids are confronted with, all kids are confronted with situations where they have to use their eyes for reading and close work for many hours a day in school. Typically, two-thirds of a kid's day is spent looking at their desk, reading, writing, or copying from the board, going back and forth from the board to their desk. So that's, in an average six-hour school day, that's four hours a day that a yeah. an eight-year-old, say, would be using their eyes up close. Yeah. yeah. Then they have yeah. to go home and do homework. And so it's when these when, when kids have difficulty with these visual skills that they, they morph into that kind of behavior that, that you see in your testing and that, that, that parents can see, kids getting... Uh, Getting tired, wanting to take breaks, uh, skipping lines, rubbing their eyes, and it's 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 as if they just run out of gas. They don't have the visual stamina 
to allow them to use their eyes comfortably for uh, as long as they need to. You know, it's, it's certain as you're talking. I, re, you know, how it is in our world. Certain cases kind of stay with you. And I remember, I'm reflecting on a case back of the college optometry days. A, a man, I think he was about 25 years old, came to me, describing like I don't know, flight training school. Like, and I'm like, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> I had no idea. Mm. And I did, you know, a psychological test battery, and I saw some signs and symptoms. And I remember Dr. Scheinman saying. It was, you know, this guy described how he could fly any plane out on the horizon. He was great at flying in the horizon, but when it came to rapidly reading the instrument panel, he was having a lot of trouble. So I learned from you guys and from the way he described it that this rapid kind of, you know, movement, near point movement, this kind of trying to take in the information on the instrument panel back and forth, back and forth, was he couldn't do it. And, and I remember Dr. Scheinman saying that he had a whopping convergence problem that was undercutting mm-hmm. him left and right, you know. That's a good example. I mean, it's it's just, it's different. 2020, 2015 yeah. uh, is great, but it doesn't predict what those other skills are going to be like. They need to be looked at, they need to be tested, which is what a good right. developmental vision exam does it looks at the full range of visual skills not just does a kidney glasses and have healthy yeah. eyes of course that's important but you got to really get to the other stuff so, so this term comes up a lot that you know it's, it's one of these jargony terms converge and you've said it and i think we've already touched on it in, in many ways but i'd like you to define this term of convergence insufficiency can you define that and what in, in really basic terms sure convergence insufficiency is basically um someone who who can't cross their eyes and you think you know everybody's got their uh you know their images of of kids uh, who can cross their eyes and make make them do uh funny and weird things uh and and people think that it's just kind of a, a trick uh or a weird skill but it's actually something that we all do every single time you look at anything up close whether it's reading writing computer work eating Anytime you look at something up close, both eyes are crossing in towards your nose, and they have to stay in that cross posture as long as you're looking at that that item up close for that uh, uh, the image to stay single. And, and in regards to reading and writing, kids have to keep their eyes easily crossed long enough uh, so that they can keep single vision uh, <clears throat> while they're doing that activity. Kids with convergence problems uh, will complain uh, of headaches because their eyes are wanting to drift out. They can't hold them in that posture. They get double vision. They get uh, eye fatigue. They get um, uh, uh, blurry vision. Uh, so basically, reading for them becomes much more laborious the longer they read. The longer they read, the harder it gets. And uh, that's what convergence insufficiency is. The reason it's it's talked about a lot is because it's the most common type of eye muscle problem. It's present okay. in about... Three to five percent of the population, and this is true of, of adults as well as kids. It's uh, uh, it's 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 quite common, and uh, as a result, it's been studied the most. It's it's the the diagnosis, the visual diagnosis that, that's been looked at the most carefully in terms of how does this affect reading and learning, uh, mm-hmm. how is it treated, the effectiveness of treatment, uh, etc. So three to five percent of the overall population. Right, have right. may have this thing. Now, what would you say? I don't know. Are there are there reliable or there good numbers in terms of the population of people with reading problems and learning problems, and maybe even extending out to ADHD that have convergence insufficiency? What's what's that percentage? Yeah, the the and and this gets to the 
the to the controversy because the studies are 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 mixed on this. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because when you do these kinds of studies, the populations of the studies are often defined quite differently. But right. an interesting one that was done uh, a couple of years ago looked at kids, and this was done in an ophthalmological clinic, uh, interestingly, um, university ophthalmology clinic, and they looked at kids who had a diagnosis of convergence insufficiency and found <clears throat> and looked at how many of those kids also had ADD or ADHD and then found that kids were three times as likely to have ADHD as the typical population. And then they looked at a separate group of kids with ADHD and found that they were three times as likely to have convergence problems. So it seems like, um, and, and more of the evidence points to this than doesn't, that in kids that have reading, learning, and attention problems, the prevalence of these kinds of visual skill problems, including convergence problems, is higher. In it's other higher, words, but you know, it's, yeah, higher. it's higher. It's a bigger. It's, higher. It's, a, it's a risk factor for right, right for uh, for, right. for these kids. You know where I get my back up, and again, this is something you and I have talked about a lot. And I think you said that well. You know, it's higher. That does, that you know, it's, that doesn't mean it's ninety percent. Or the, and you're not making any wild claims that say ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of the reading problems are rooted in <laughs> convergence insufficiency. I mean, if you said that, I wouldn't have you on the air. I would. Yeah, right. I would, I would be. I couldn't deal with that. You know. Right. So well, that, 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 that really gets to the, to, that really gets to the to the controversy because uh, there you know anybody who's really been in in and around special education uh, probably has an opinion uh, about yeah. vision therapy, <laughs> positive sure. or negative, and and yeah. Yeah. kind of the way I look at it is is that um, it's a very polarized debate, and and on the one side there are people in my profession um, who oversell vision therapy. And historically, mm-hmm. there have been people who perhaps when less was known about dyslexia, to be charitable, but <laughs> uh, who have made uh, outrageous or ridiculous claims about vision therapy and, and right. made it out to be a panacea. Well, it, well it's not a panacea. There's uh, anybody that uh, really knows what they're, they're doing will, will readily admit that it, it doesn't fix ADHD. I can't fix ADHD by doing vision therapy. Right. I can't fix dyslexia. But on the other side of the debate, there are people who are highly critical of vision therapy. Mm-hmm. And I think they they really intentionally or unintentionally misunderstand what vision therapy is supposed to do. It's not supposed to treat ADHD or dyslexia. It's not mm-hmm. it's it's implausible that it would do that. What it does do, and the science of vision therapy is, is unfortunately often ignored, and, and there is a, is a rich literature on vision therapy. It's been uh, a part of optometry for about uh, 75, 80 years, and, and the research over the last decade in particular has, has definitely gotten better. But vision therapy is very capable of changing a whole range of visual functions. For instance, if kids can't cross their eyes uh, and, it, and it makes reading hard, very, very often vision therapy can fix that and get rid of their headaches and double vision. Vision right, therapy not is fix the reading. They're, you're talking not fixing their double fix vision. The reading, or fixing, but right. do some components of, of, of reading, uh, uh, are they amenable to uh, change with vision yeah. therapy? Yes. Uh, reading comprehension is a good example. Um, we've all had the experience of reading when we're tired. And one of the first things that happens when you're reading when you're tired is you don't remember what you're reading. 
And that's normal when it's 10.30 at night and your body is shutting down. Sure. Your, your so, brain is using yeah. some of your energy, your attention span to stay awake, so you're, you have less attention to devote to reading. Well, kids with vision problems, that happens to them even when their body is not tired. They're using more of their attention to make their eyes work, and they have less attention to remember what they're reading, keep their place. So reading comprehension and reading fluency are aspects of reading that can be improved uh, with vision therapy, and we have some data on that. Uh, the data could certainly be better, and we could use more studies, but they are forthcoming. So, okay, you know, and I see I'm looking at the clock here, which, you know, I knew this would happen. We're, we're 12 minutes away from uh, the 45-minute mark, and I think that it's possible people, if you are listening to this live, it will shut off at 45 minutes, but the if you hear, hear it on it through podcasts, you know you, you, we might go past the forty-five minutes a little bit. If Michael, there might be a couple more questions or points you want to get across. So I might go a little bit past the forty-five minutes if that's okay with you. Great, great. You're okay with that? Perfect, definitely. I, so, so what you're not saying? I just want to clarify what you're not you're not saying because I don't want to get my back up again. You know, you know how I can be. <laughs> um, you know, what you're not saying is that reading comprehension per se is fixed by vision therapy. What I think what you're saying is if I have to read lengthy, I'm just paraphrasing, I think I'm getting what I got out of this. If I have to read long, dense text, I'm going to get fatigued if I have this problem. Therefore, I'm not going to, compre I'm not going to comprehend very well. Therefore, if I'm in a little bit better shape to stay with it, I'm going to, pro I'm going to process the information more effectively. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. And you know, a good analogy would be um, I think people would not deny that attention deficit treatment can improve reading comprehension. What, what, what do you think of that, Richard? I don't know. I'd have to think about that. You threw me a curveball that I'm like, really? People would not deny it. I might deny it. You know, I deny a lot would, of well, things. Well, would I'm you deny sure. that? Let me know. That's, I don't know. That's, yeah, I'll get that's back a question to for one. you. All right. I'll um, get back to one. But um, if kids. You know, I I, th I think it's uh, there. There's some evidence that it does, and it's it's uh, the mechanism really is is very similar. You need sustained attention to do right. anything, and kids with attention right. deficit are with difficulty with sustaining attention. Reading comprehension is one of the things that can suffer. Right. So the big, vision so problems do the same thing. Vision problems limit attention, but they don't right. limit they drain attention off. I, yeah. globally. Right. They, they right. limit visual yeah. attention. Right, they you, they can be draining off your attentional capacity. It seems yep. to me that's yeah. Attentional attention is finite. You've only got a certain amount of it. It's not unlimited. And if you're using some of it because you're you're hungry or your your foot yeah. hurts or you're, you're gonna you're gonna be it's gonna be harder to remember what you're reading. There's probably more we could say about the controversy, but give me the one minute. What 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 happens in vision therapy? And I also read, and I want to clarify this. There were some things that said in the ophthalmology research. Well, these exercises can be done at home, and you know, maybe they're better if you do the exercise at home with the therapy in the office. What? It, give me one minute of what is vision therapy? What? Sure. What, how, sure. What, 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 what vision therapy is is people think of it. Uh, can, you can describe it as just eye exercises, but it's it's that's that's kind of limiting because it's not like going to the gym and lifting weights. It's it's not those kind of exercises. They're really eye brain exercises. In essence, they're motor skills. Uh, motor skills means that okay. you're using your brain to control certain aspects of your body. Motor skills are keyboarding or hitting a baseball or riding okay. a bike. Once a child learns how to do that and can do it automatically, 
their brain is capable of doing that for long periods of time. Vision therapy is training the motor skills of vision, which are convergence and tracking and focusing skills. We use lenses, prisms, 3D uh, glasses, uh, various instruments, uh, and basically we teach kids how to uh, use their eyes comfortably, easily for long periods of time. We make these various visual functions automatic so that when they're reading, they they can do that easily. How many sessions on average is a typical course of treatment? The you know for convergence insufficiency, uh, a typical uh, session or course of treatment is about three to four months. And let let me get you get to that question. That's a great question on home therapy versus in office therapy. Uh, about uh, seven or eight years ago, um, the uh, National Eye Institute was sick of optometry and ophthalmology arguing so much about vision therapy and. They gave us a six million dollar grant to study convergence insufficiency, and it was a it was a bipartisan study with ophthalmology and optometry as a randomized clinical trial, nine different treatment sites all over the country. And what we did is um, we had four treatment groups. Two two groups of kids with convergence problems had home based exercises. One group of kids had placebo or fake sham vision therapy activities that we made to just look like vision therapy but weren't really doing anything. And then the, the last group got what we call in-office vision therapy, where kids were seen once a week in the office with daily exercises at home. And the group that got better uh, much more than the other groups was the in-office vision therapy group. And interestingly, the kids who did the home-based treatments didn't do any better than placebo. So, you know, roughly a third of them got better, but that's what placebo does. It fixes about a third of people. Mm-hmm. So home-based therapy is, it can be helpful in some cases, but it's no different than home-based therapy for anything. I mean, if you have speech therapy and you just gave a, a sheet of paper to the parents and said, you know, go home and do this for three months, or if you hurt your knee and the physical therapist gave you some exercises to do at home for three months, the likelihood of getting better you'd think would be less than if you were guided through the process by someone who knew how to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what vision therapy is. It's, it's guidance right. by a doctor or vision therapist who knows how to make the exercises or the activities first easy and then gradually more and more challenging until ultimately the problem is fixed. So in-office therapy seems to work better than than home therapy. You know, and I do want to remind you of this fancy $6 million study. It's very interesting that, you know, I think Dr. Scheinman was the lead researcher. Remind him once again that I still was not pulled in as a consultant on any level in that $6 million project. <laughs> we're getting, we're getting but, uh, you on the next yeah, one. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, we're getting you on the next question. one because we, right, we now I, have a $14 million study. Oh, good. Yeah, well, I'll get nothing out of that $14 million. Okay, good. So what, uh, what about colored filters? What's, tell us about that. You know, Michael, I have five, I'm going to stay with the five-minute thing. We're all going to cut off at the 45 minutes. So tell us about colored filters. Sure. And... You know, well, you know, you know, I go really about? far back on this uh, as well because uh, when you were at the college, uh, we were visited by um, Helen Erlin, who is the psychologist mm-hmm. that uh, um, seemed to uh, stumble across this uh, I- mm-hmm. this idea that that kids, some kids, read better through colored filters. And we embarked on a number of studies back in the 90s uh, on this, and and what we found is that most of the kids who seemed to read better with colored filters actually had binocular vision, eye-teaming, tracking, focusing problems that could be fixed with vision therapy. Most of these kids had fixable vision problems. Mm-hmm. There is, but it was still, it's an interesting idea that has attracted research from really all over the world. Um, and, and 
what people seem to have found is that there is a very small segment of people who are quite sensitive to color and who report unusual visual symptoms during reading of the print shimmering or moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're often very light sensitive themselves, and when they look through colored lenses, the words seem to stop moving and, and reading feels easier to them. In my years of, of practice, uh, you know, I look for these kids all the time, and I probably have seen about 20 uh, over right. the, the last right. 20 years. They're, they're, so they're out there, but they're, they're, they're out there, but, there, but they but seem to not be very, the, the very rare. There. So I don't want to discount it, and there is some evidence, some, there's some research to, to, uh, to support it, but most of these kids who complain about these unusual visual symptoms during reading, they have a yeah. diagnosable and treatable vision problem. Right. I always found the, 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 with, the, with the rare ones coming through, that light blue tint seemed to be the, the color they would respond to. <laughs> Indeed. Do you want to leave us, Michael? We have, we're really winding down with any, like, you know, you said so many great points uh, that I think that need to be heard and echoed out there. In, and I, don't, I didn't hear anything that would have, you know, like I joke about getting my back up about this. But in, in one minute here, Michael, I've got to wind it down. What, what's your, we'll let, leave parents with just a couple well, what of, I, you know, take yeah, What points. I would encourage parents to do is if, if they find out about the, the, these types of problems and behaviors, uh, there's there's tons of great websites, uh, visiontherapy.org, childrensvision.com is another one. Just Google vision therapy. You'll see all kinds of stuff. And they're not trying up, to sell you on stuff. They're not no, trying they're to not trying to stuff. sell you on stuff. There's good information. Okay. And you basically want to watch your child, look and listen for clues. Do they exhibit these behaviors? Uh, and if they do, if reading and schoolwork are frustrating for them, these vision, these types of vision problems need to be either ruled in or ruled out. It's easy to do if you find... Uh, a, a vision therapist and an optometrist that does this kind of work. There's an organization called covd.org, uh, College of Optometrists and Optometrists and Vision Development. They have a doctor's finder uh, that uh, lists people all over the country that specialize in vision therapy. Uh, and, and what's your, kids, web- about your pardon? website? You my website? website is yeah, my website's drgalloway.com, dr galloway with all a's, g a l l a w a y dot com, and. Uh, See if, if it makes some sense as you, you read the signs and symptoms, these behaviors that your kids exhibit, and if they do, get them tested. And, and most importantly, all eye exams are not created equal. It would be great if every eye doctor in the country would do the types of testing necessary to, to evaluate these skills, but they often don't. I see multitudes of kids who have had years of eye care, and it was just the basic 2020 eyes healthy, don't need glasses kind of stuff where they get glasses and their 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 problems are still aren't fixed. So these visual skills need to be looked at carefully. So when you're talking to your eye care provider, ask them if they do tests of eye teaming skills. Do they test convergence? Do they test tracking? Do they test visual processing? And if they roll their eyes, you're in the wrong place. Um, if they say yes, they test them, but they maybe they don't do vision therapy, but they they'll they'll send you to someone who does if their if their child has a problem. That's perfectly fine, too. Not everybody has to do vision therapy. Uh, most optometrists uh, don't. 
Uh, and, you know, ophthalmologists are, are getting on board with this. Uh, St. Christopher's Hospital in Philadelphia uh, just added a vision therapy department, uh, a great children's uh, hospital here in Philadelphia. Massachusetts Eye and Ear has a vision therapy department uh, now, which has been up and so running there, for a year. There are these years. overlaps. These are, there's definitely overlaps. Overlaps we're, with ophthalmology, pediatric ophthalmology. Yeah, we're finding, we're finding common ground, which is really uh, encouraging because, uh, you know, this is these are real problems that have real real impacts on, on kids' lives, and we, we need to find them and we need to fix them. Michael, thank you so much. I knew you'd be a great guest. I, I look forward to, uh, you know, more lunches and dinners and conversations with you over these uh, the ongoing conversations. So thanks, Michael. <laughs> Richard, pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you know, my next month's guest will be Dr. Howard Margolis. Dr. Margolis is the author of Reading Disabilities, Beating the Odds, and we will be discussing the top ten points to keep in mind for reading disabilities and dyslexia, so be sure to tune in. Tune in. I invite you to visit my website, www.shutdownlearner.com and thecoffeeclotch.com and mayorjohnson.com and youdiscovering.org. And I want to thank you for listening to School Struggles, and we will see you next time to talk in plain language. Good night.